Last uh, Sunday morning we were looking at Hebrews chapter 5, the early part, and we saw that from chapter 5 verse 10 to chapter 6 verse 20, there is a parenthesis or a digression. Uh, And at the beginning and end of this passage we have two verses that effectively are saying the same thing to, to signal to us that it is a digression. Uh, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And if you look at the beginning of chapter 7, you see that it starts with the word for, which, which signals to us that the writer is going to explain the significance of Melchizedek and his priesthood and the significance of his argument here that Christ is supreme. He's supreme in every area, but he is especially supreme in his priesthood. And although different areas of his supremacy are covered in this letter, it is particularly the priesthood that makes up the the body of the letter, the the main thrust of the letter. And one of the big arguments he has in this early, uh, this first half of chapter 7, is that Christ is so superior as a priest that he belongs to a different order of priesthood from Aaron. Aaron, you may remember, the brother of Moses was the first high priest and Aaron, like Moses, was of the tribe of Levi. Uh, And that's a point he makes here in the part that we read. And so all the priests that descended from Aaron were what we would call Levitical priests. That is, they descended from Levi. Uh, And He's making that clear, but but he's also making clear that Jesus did not come from the tribe of Levi. As a descendant of David, as a son of David, he came from the tribe of Judah. It is evident, he says, that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. So God himself has changed the priesthood the moment Jesus came into the world. He changed the priesthood. He effectively said, well, the Levitical priesthood, it's done its task, it's done what I intended it to do, and now we're going to have a different priesthood. But you notice the writer is saying more than that there's a change. Obviously he's saying that, but he's saying that this change in itself points to the imperfection of the first priesthood, of the Levitical priesthood. Verse 11, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? So he's he's saying here, realize now that it's a different priesthood, which Jesus is the high priest of, and it's a better priesthood. And uh, you may remember that I said last Sunday morning that the great thing, one of the great things attracting uh, Jewish Christians to return to Judaism was this, this magnificent figure of the priest, magnificent in his role, in his office, in his task in his robes in his function in a magnificent temple it was very attractive it appealed to the eye it appealed to the senses 
And that was enticing them back. But he says, you need to understand we're moving in a different realm now, the realm of the invisible. We're moving in the realm of faith, uh, which is the substance of things not seen, the evidence of things not seen. And we're moving in a different priesthood, a better priesthood. And we can summarize what we need to do with this passage of Scripture this morning by looking at the exhortation of the writer here to us, to his readers, to his hearers. In verse 4, we have another of these occasions when the word consider is used. It comes up more than once in this letter. Consider, focus on this. Make this the object of your attention and of your thoughts. Uh, Later on in the letter, consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Well, here we are exhorted to consider how great this man was. That's what we're going to be doing for a little while. Consider how great this man, Melchizedek, was. Because in seeing how great he was, we will see how great his priesthood is and how great Christ is. That's the purpose of the writer. We consider, firstly, his greatness in that he was both a priest and a king. Verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. I think you know, if you've heard me a few times recently, that God, in the Old Testament, very much forbid the combination of priesthood and kingship in the nation of Israel. It was typical of the pagan nations, where kings were often sacral persons worshipping false gods and sometimes even being sacrificed uh, to the false god in the end of their reign. But God rules all that out and he ensures that there should no, uh, in no way be a uniting in any Israel, Israelite kingship uh, with, with the priesthood. However, there are indications that that is not how it's going to be forever. For example, in the book of Zechariah and chapter 6, we have reference to what God says should take place to the high priest Josiah. I haven't time to go really into this passage, but let me just read out Zechariah chapter 6. Uh, We'll read from verse 12. Speak unto him, that is to Joshua the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and the Lord shall build the temple, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and he shall sit upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, And the council of peace shall be between them both. So in this figure of Joshua, we have a type. We have a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is both king and priest. He is the branch. Uh, He will build the temple of the Lord. He will build his church. And there are other references in Scripture to this uniting of the two 
offices in our Lord Jesus Christ. In Psalm 110, the one that's quoted so often in Hebrews, uh, the Lord has sworn and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And yet, as we see in Genesis 14, and as we have here reminded in Hebrews 7, Melchizedek was a king as well as a priest. And that not in some pagan sort of connection, but he was a priest of the Most High God, of the true God. And what Melchizedek here is a type, which means a foreshadowing, an anticipation. And Christ is the anti-type. That means the one to whom the type points. Christ is our priest. Christ is our king. This is what he's saying to the Hebrew Christians. So Melchizedek was great, but Christ has all of that greatness and more. Secondly, see how great this man was. Consider how great he was because he was characterized by both righteousness and peace. Verse 2. Being first by interpretation, king of righteousness, that's what the name Melchizedek means. King of righteousness, that's the interpretation of that particular uh, Hebrew word. And then as king of Salem, and the word Salem means peace, which means he is king of peace. Now in what sense Melchizedek fulfilled those things, we don't have enough information to know. But we can say that our Lord Jesus Christ uh, fulfills that type fully, wonderfully, because he is king of righteousness and he's also king of peace. He did no sin. He never committed one sin. He never thought one sin. He never spoke a sin. And yet he is also the prince of peace who shed his blood on the cross for us in order to bring peace into our hearts. We have peace with God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He unites righteousness, which we would find threatening because of the holiness of God and our sinfulness, and yet he brings that righteousness into union with peace because it's righteousness that exhausted itself in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Righteousness that was vented fully against our sin upon Jesus Christ as our Savior. Jesus is both King of Righteousness and King of Peace in a way that even Melchizedek could never begin to be. So he was great because he was a king and a priest. He was great because he was characterized by both righteousness and peace. And then thirdly, consider how great this man was. He was great because he was greater than Abraham. And you know how the Jews uh, and, and Jewish Christians would have particularly looked back to Abraham as the father of the faithful, as the one to whom God uh, came into covenant in the Abrahamic covenant, uh, as the one who really the nation of Israel would have come from. And we see just how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tent of the spoils. This is bringing us back to Genesis chapter 14. And we're told that after this battle in which Abraham raced off right up into the north of Israel to the area of Dan, 
uh, and defeated that confederacy of kings and released his nephew Lot and at the same time released all the other captives, including the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and all those. But at that time, there was therefore the uh, rescue of a whole lot of booty, a whole lot of goods. There was the rescue of the people and there was the rescue of the spoils, the booty. And remember that uh, there was an attempt by the king of Sodom to get one over the king of uh, to get one over Abraham, but which we won't go into. An attempt to make Abraham enter into some sort of uh, close interaction with him that had um, feudal a feudal sort of context to it. Abraham didn't fall for that one. But what we see is Abraham giving another king, Melchizedek, a tenth of the spoils. He gives him a tenth of the spoils. And then secondly, we read that uh, Melchizedek blesses Abraham. Verse 19, he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. Without doubt, the greater blesses the lesser. So he's exercising a priestly intercession here for Abraham. And then thirdly, even though Abraham did not receive worldly goods from the king of Sodom, he did receive bread and wine from Melchizedek. He received kingly hospitality from Melchizedek. And in all these ways, we're being told the greatness of Melchizedek is showing he's greater even than Abraham. Jesus Christ is greater than Moses, greater than Abraham, greater than any of the prophets, greater than any of the apostles, greater than any of the preachers or church leaders, greater than any other human being. Fourthly, consider how this great man, how great this man was, because he is enveloped in the mysterious atmosphere of eternity. As it says in verse 3, without father, without mother, without descent or descendants, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now this is an interesting way in which the writer is reasoning. He is here arguing from silence. The fact is when we come across Melchizedek in Genesis 14 we're told nothing about him he just comes on the scene he's just suddenly there verse 18 and Melchizedek king of Salem brought forth bread and wine and he was the priest of the most high God we're told nothing about his antecedents his ancestors we're told nothing about his descendants and this is striking because in the Old Testament great emphasis is laid on the genealogy of the priesthood not just the priesthood, all the tribes. It was very important in the days of Nehemiah. If a priest couldn't demonstrate his genealogy, then he couldn't be a priest. And here we're not told anything about his ancestors. We're not told anything even about how long he lived, his lifespan. It has the atmosphere of eternity about it. He's just there. Indeed, if it wasn't for the phrase in Hebrews 7, made like unto the Son of God, we might even 
I thought he was a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. And some believers have thought that, continue to think that. It's a minority view. I believe it's a mistaken view for, simply because of this very phrase, made like unto the Son of God. I believe it's also a mistake to say this is Christ because he cannot both be a type and at the same time an anti-type. He cannot both point to something and be the same thing at the same time. Now what we have here is a marvellous use of shadows, of predictions, of anticipations in the providence of God centred upon this man Melchizedek, of whom we know so little, reminding us of the eternal nature of Jesus Christ. Yes, he came as a man. He was born of Mary and his humanity was real. It wasn't assumed. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't some sort of um, apparition. He was a real man who really had flesh and blood, who really felt pain and tiredness and so on. And yet at the same time, he was fully God. As Paul says in his letter to the Romans, Christ came who is over all God blessed forever. Now, no Levitical priest, especially not Caiaphas and Annas and their descendants, but no Levitical priest, even the best priests, can begin to approach to such supremacy. To be priest and king, to be both characterized by righteousness and peace, to be greater than Abraham, to be as God, made like unto the Son of God. And therefore abiding a priest continually, because as he says, the witness is given of him that he lived. Thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. You see, it was a real step backwards for them to go back to the Jewish temple and the Jewish priesthood. Greater than Abraham, enveloped in the atmosphere of eternity, and then great, greater than Aaron and his descendants. And he has a lot more to say about this as the letter goes on. The point is that Aaron and his descendants died, but Melchizedek lives Verse 8, and here men that die, that's the priests, receive tithes. But there he receiveth them, of whom it is witness that he liveth. Now, that statement isn't made just as it is in Genesis, but the fact that nothing is said about his death in Genesis, the writer uses that point to say that he lives. He still lives in that sense. And Christ is greater than Aaron and his descendants. Melchizedek is greater than Aaron and his descendants. And then he makes the argument that Levi, the Aaronic priesthood, was in the loins of Abraham when Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And verily they that are of the sons of Levi who receive the office of priesthood have a commandment to take tithes of the people. Verse 5, and then in verse 10, for he was yet in the loins of his father, this Levi was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So when Abraham was giving those tithes to Melchizedek, it was as though the whole of the nation of Israel was giving tithes 
through him to Melchizedek. And it was as though the whole of the priesthood, and it was though Aaron and the Levitical priesthood as a whole was giving a tenth of everything to Melchizedek. We'd have to grasp just how great this man was as a type. And therefore how great Christ is. And really you could sum it all up by saying, consider how great this man was because just like Melchizedek in type, so Christ absolutely has an eternal priesthood. Let me just repeat some verses here. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Verse 8, And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them, of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. And verses 16 and 17, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So whether it's Aaron or whether it's the high priest of the day or whether it's any of the priests, they're just people who are going to die. They haven't got the quality of eternity about them. And therefore when they die, their priesthood will die with them. But not this priest, Jesus Christ. He will never die. He will never stop being your priest. It's said of him that he lives forever. And he lives forever as your priest. He will never stop interceding for you. He will never stop watching over you. He will never stop being sympathetic for you. He will never stop understanding the, the temptations and the feeling of your infirmities. He will never stop having a throne of grace to which you can go and obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He will never stop understanding your weakness, your worries, your sufferings, your temptations. He will never stop being there. In your place, as your righteousness, as your peace with God, as one who is eternally in the heavens on your behalf and therefore go nowhere else and go to nowhere, no one else than Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. And he wants us to understand it from the whole range of scripture, not just because it's a statement that's true there in the isolation, but he wants us to understand it from the evidence, the data of all of Scripture. All of Scripture points to the eternal and authentic and lasting and powerful priesthood of Christ. And you can't go to another because there is no other so we can see why his book ended what he has to say. Uh, in chapter 6, we will see why his book ended it in this particular statement. Called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek, whither the forerunner for us is entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let me close by making this practical point. We all have situations 
and difficulties and failures and temptations that are massive. We have ongoing lesser ones, but we have occasions when there's massive, massive issues. When you face such an issue, say to yourself, I have a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 